Welcome to the Kamuzi Next Billion Users podcast. It's lovely to see you. Yeah. I haven't seen Likewise. you in like a whole pandemic, mm-hmm. but just know I'm like your biggest fan. Oh, likewise. And man. I'm following you and I'm supporting you at all opportunities. Kamuzi yeah. um, is part of Severo's journey also. I guess so. I Definitely. Because you guys, you know, were at, the, were at the front, you know, when everyone was like thinking tech, Alex and you and, and the team were just like, you know, we're going to do it and we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And regardless of what everybody else thinks about us, we're going to make it happen. And you guys, what, it's been 10 plus years now? It's 10 years this year. Yeah, bro. man, 10 years. And you're still <laughs> still surviving. A lot of people started when you started. How many no of them more. are still here? Yeah, it's true. And so that's big. It's, so when I saw you work for the first time, I didn't get it. What do you mean? Bro, we were in us two. Yes. You came in here. Uh-huh. You're going to med school by day. <laughs> power napping in the afternoon. Yeah. And then just hustling some shit all throughout the night. Like Ooh, you were yeah. a machine with it. And the next thing you know, I was intern at OBH. When next yeah. thing you know, I was intern at DeepMind. Yeah. You hustled the masters. And I saw yeah. that, I was like, he's mm. got it. Mm. Um, but... Years after that now, yeah. your doctor, mm. Ivan, mm. Beckley, mm. MSc this, mm. degreed up, mm-hmm. about three or four degrees now? Yeah, I think three. Um, three. And I think what I enjoy most is about how you've taken that to apply it mm. to real world. I don't think that many people that are so educated, they just get addicted to staying in education, yeah. but yeah. you've gone to apply that to the outside. And so I would love to hear about Severa. Yeah. And the reason why is because, similar to what we were talking about, Kamuzi's focus these days is about designing for the next billion users, mm-hmm. be that you're the new generation of grandmas that are mm-hmm. coming on board or Gen Z being the most people with a mobile phone mm-hmm. and Gen Alpha coming out with behaviours that we don't know about. Mm-hmm. Our whole life is about, our whole future life at Kamuzi is about mm-hmm. designing for the next billion users. And you've chosen a problem which... It's gonna affect everybody's body mm. in one way, shape, or form. If it's not you, it's someone you love. If it's not someone yeah. you love, it's you're taking care of them or you're serving them. And yeah. I love the rest of the world to hear about it and yeah. your thoughts. And so I think that's what my okay. discussion is gonna be about today. Cool. Yeah. So I guess good. yeah. Let's so start. Suvera. Suvera. Suvera is a virtual care service. Um, we manage patients who have multiple long-term conditions. Um, and the intention was that we recognize primary care. We we believe is the bedrock of healthcare. You know, there are so many parts to the healthcare system, but we think without a stable and productive primary care system, you don't really have an efficient or effective healthcare system as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we recognize that paying attention and doing that part of healthcare delivery well was going to be important. But there was one thing that was clearly missing for us is that primary care is very similar for most people. Mm. Um, And that's a problem because not everyone's healthcare needs are similar. They're very different. Um, And so if you took a design mindset to that same approach, you would think actually, you know, the healthcare system or the primary care system specifically, so your GPs, doctor you see first, Mm. is designed for a very small proportion of problems therefore a small proportion of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we need to do is think about how do we design for the people who have the most complex needs and actually cost the system the most. So 70% of the healthcare and social spend in the UK is allocated and spent on people with multiple long-term conditions, like seven zero. Mm-hmm. And so 
in a world where we can't continue to spend proportionally more and more, the way you make savings is by focusing where most of the money is spent. It makes a lot of sense. And so um, we decided to create the service that was tech enabled and that we utilize technology in order to provide a better experience for patients that would lead to better outcomes and would therefore mean they need less help from the healthcare system. Um, so that was the mindset, create a very design focused approach using technology to look after people remotely mm. that would help them achieve their health goals quickly and would mean that would have less time being managed by the healthcare system. So that's pretty complicated. Mm. It is. I understand it because I spent my whole yes. first part of my yeah, life yeah. being a biologist. But yeah. Simplify term, it. Not even simplify it. I guess for those that are listening, can we maybe bring it down to earth? How many people yeah. are affected by multiple long-term conditions in the UK? Yeah. Do you have that number? Absolutely. So about 20 to 30% of people have at least one long-term condition. Yeah. Um, and about 15, 20% of those people then have two or more. Um, so... We're talking about a population of 10 million plus in yeah. the UK who have long-term conditions that they have to live with every single day. It's about one in seven people. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, what we see is a future where that number is going to be ever increasing with a population that's ever kind of getting older. Um, and so unless we do something, it's going to be more of an issue. So doctor, doctor, can you give me some examples of what a long-term condition is? Yeah. Um, for those that are listening. Yeah. Um, so a long-term condition, we define it as any condition where there is no cure. Mm -hmm. So um, there are many healthcare problems where we don't have cures for. Oh. So if you go to your doctor, you have a runny nose, you have a banging headache, um, we know more or less it's a flu. Mm -hmm. um, and we know what we need to do to kind of mitigate those symptoms and for you to get better. It's kind of the defined pathway. Whereas if you have arthritis, um, there is no medication I can give you to take away the arthritis. Mm. And what I can do is minimize your symptoms. Um, and what I can do is also create um, a series of exercises or kind of lifestyle habits or encourage in order for that arthritis to be less of a problem. Mm. But it's always gonna be there. Um, and so those conditions are where we focus is about saying those people have to live with these healthcare kind of conditions um, and they need a different type of experience in order to productively live and be effective in society. So there's quite a few. So you could have, um, we could go from chronic pain as in terms of you've got back pain or you've got arthritis. Yes. Or it could yeah. be, like, and those are just the musculoskeletal ones. Yes. Like you could have- Kidney disease, you have CKD, asthma. asthma. Okay. Yeah. So just think of any body parts there's potentially, there is a long-term condition that can be linked to it. So with that in mind, and there being such a wide variety of conditions, yeah. and Severe is here to tackle this big thing, Yeah. did you have a specific condition which you chose to start with in terms of treating, or did you just yeah. say, hey, we're going to be the generalist practitioners who can yeah. manage all of these things? Yeah, great idea. Yeah, great question. So we were very intentional that we didn't want a single solution, point solution. So there are loads of providers of care for long-term conditions who say, we're just gonna look after diabetes. Mm. If you don't have diabetes, we're not gonna look after you. Mm. And that never felt right to me in training because so much of healthcare actually um, coexists together. So people who have diabetes very likely have high blood pressure. Some of those people also have mild or moderate depression. 
And so if someone who has who's diabetic but also has those things, do they get the help they need fully? Mm. Very unlikely. Um, and so we decided that we wanted to start with that end in mind, that we wanted a multi-condition platform um, that could support many people who have multiple and complex needs in that case. Um, and so we started with the thing that was most prevalent. So the thing that was most common, mm. long-term condition that is most common is high blood pressure. Mm. Um, so there's about a billion people in the UK, in, the, in the world that have high blood pressure. One so in seven. One in seven, right? <laughs> so a lot of people who have um, uh, those conditions actually is silent. Mm. So there's very few symptoms until it becomes very um, kind of, it gets to the point where it's almost uh, dangerous for people to, to be living with. They have to be admitted. At that point when you start to feel symptoms, so they call it one of the silent long-term conditions because you can have it and still operate relatively okay. Um, and so what we started with was a platform built for managing blood pressure very effectively from end to end. Um, and that was the gateway to say, if we take the most common long-term condition, a lot of those people will have other conditions, so we don't have to re-engage them. They're already on the platform. We can now expand the platform to start managing diabetes, which we do now, and then asthma, which we're planning to do next. Um, and so it was very strategic with that end in mind. So you've reimagined the management yeah. of chronic conditions yeah. because you recognized how they present in people's lives, which is yeah. as usually more than one, yeah. usually complex and interrelated to other things. Yeah. And so, and they impact the day-to-day -day experiences of life. Yeah. You started with high blood pressure because the most common. Yeah. You've moved into diabetes and you're going towards yeah. asthma. Yeah. As you're making this journey mm -hmm. along this roadmap to a, a platform that does serve multiple chronic pain conditions, mm -hmm. Have you started noticing patterns in how, between how people manage each a different mm. condition? Mm. Is there common insight that comes from yeah. these different things? Like, is there insight that happens with how people manage arthritis, <coughs> how people manage um, blood pressure, how people manage their kidneys, how people manage yeah. the diabetes? Yeah. Have you not started noticing this stuff yet? I think what I really enjoy about building and developing and creating is that you learn things that are not obvious. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best thing because you, you almost go on this journey of discovery um, and finding things that you're like, oh, like, this isn't obvious. Mm. Um, <clears throat> one of the big things that we came across was that so much of managing long-term condition is nothing clinical. Mm. Um, it's everything to do with the social. Mm. It's everything to do with the personal. And it's everything to do with the emotional. Mm. Um, and so, so much of healthcare actually is not medical. Um, or healthcare that is effective for people. Um, and so we went in with a very clinical mindset. We want to manage blood pressure and keep it in control, but patients were coming to us actually saying, I don't have a home. Or, <clears throat> you know, I'm worried about my daughter. Mm. Um, and you want to prescribe Ramipril. And so- What's Ramipril? Sorry for the- Ramipril is kind know. of like the most common drug that's given to manage blood pressure. Okay. Um, to, to kind of keep it controlled. Um, and so, it, what was very clear was that we needed to evolve our thinking about what it means to manage conditions. So we couldn't just take, for this platform to be truly effective, it couldn't just take a very clinical mindset <clears throat> to how we think about managing people for the long term. So we started to ask different questions. Mm. We started to ask about their confidence around managing their condition. We started to ask about their anxiety around their condition. 
because what we realized and our product team did amazing work on looking at the there were different cohorts of patients based on the axis of like anxiety so how they felt whether it's less anxious or more anxious and how confident they felt about managing their condition so patients who are very anxious mm. but um they were least confident about managing their conditions they didn't want to engage in anything um they just wanted to see a doctor and get it done with they didn't want to deal with like a back and forth and and kind of try to get it to normal they just want to give me the tablet and don't talk about it to me mm. those people that were anxious but they felt like they had an agency over doing something they really engaged in severa so they really wanted to have more blood pressure results and they wanted to track how they were doing and they wanted to try and get to the best dose that would have the minimal side effects and so what we realized is so much of and it makes sense because these people have similar conditions but they're different people mm. and so they're going to come at it in different ways um which inherently affects how those conditions present so that's the first lesson was that so much of what we need to deliver um to be effective is actually not clinical mm, so i get so many different directions what we learned from our experience in chronic pain mm. was exactly what you described, right? Yeah. Um, they we, we articulated it as currently chronic pain is looked at from a biological, then yeah. psychological, yeah. then societal yeah. or sociological perspective. Yeah. Yeah. But actually it's backwards. Yeah. It's actually your sociological impacts first yeah. that help you manage it well. Then it's how it impacts your mind, how you yeah. think about it. And exactly. then how you think about it will then determine the behaviours and actions you take yeah. to manage the physical presentation of those exactly. conditions. And so, so true. I think that's very interesting. But listening to you and understanding what severe is, I did a bit of background reading, I hope mm. you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. But like you could describe it as a holistic mm. approach to this care, right? That's yeah. how you've, that's how you phrased it to the world. Mm -hmm. And there's two questions. I hate asking two questions, but I'll need to get off my chest. <laughs> um, for the it. first question is, what does holistic really mean? Yes. To you yeah. and to you all over at the Severa team. Yeah. And how do you really look after that? How does that? How do you address that in your product and yeah. service? Yeah. I guess the second thing is. After doing this for so long, I'd love to understand the scale that you're doing this at now. Yes. Because I've known you raised quite a bit yeah, to get have. this far. Yeah. And I think that's so beautiful to see you do that, by the yeah. way. It's inspirational. Yeah. But then, yeah, like, what's the scale you're operating at? And are you yeah. put lessons back into the system? Yes. So I'll answer the second question first. Um, so the scale that we're operating at, we work with, at the moment, 87 practices across the UK, that translates to managing a list of close to 70,000 patients um, in the space of what has been two years operating the service. Um, a lot of that is being fueled by our ability to raise money to grow that quickly. Mm -hmm. It's very hard if you didn't have that capital to invest in that growth. Mm -hmm. um, but we saw that there was, you know, we, were, we still feel like we're in less, about just over 1% of practices and managing them. Um, we want to get to 100 um so <laughs> we have a long way to go um and the team is very focused on just keep going uh so at the scale we're operating and we always said this wasn't going to just take a, a few hundred patients because um we wanted to be as impactful as possible and so to do that you need to build with scaling mind and you need to build with like how do we manage a hundred thousand patients not 10. Mm -hmm. um those two questions have different answers 
Um, and so we wanted to answer that for the larger amount. Um, in terms of like, how do we think about holistic healthcare mm-hmm. and how does that translate into what we build? Um, I think what we decided was that we needed to get the buying from the system. Mm. So um, if we went along and said, the way you're delivering or looking after people with long-term conditions is wrong. And what we're going to do is we're going to like um, send people meal plans and we're going to have someone visit them at home and you're going, you guys are going to pay for it. it. It just wouldn't have gone right. Um, and no one would have, everyone would have laughed us out the room. And so what we said is we need the system to be on board in order for us to, to reinvent it. Mm-hmm. Um, so go from the inside then out. Um, and so we said, what's important to practices and their patients and how they manage them? And it was basically making sure their medications were were being prescribed, was at the right dose, and patients were taking it. So we said, we're just going to do that really well. Because if we make them successful, we're more likely to be able to influence the way in which we think care should be delivered. And so that has been the mindset, is make our practices that we work with as partners mm-hmm. successful in the care that they want to deliver in order to start to influence the care that we think should be delivered. And partly, be, and also I would say, practice also believe that that should be the case, but they have external pressures that they need to do mm-hmm. with. So let's make their life easy so that we can all do together what we really want to do, which is to go beyond the clinical. So I guess I'm interested in the scale, as you know, for mm. this time around. Yeah. Um, Community's vet spent a lot of time doing niche things. Yeah, in our yeah, world, yeah, yeah. I think we believe our perspective. Yeah should be heard at this stage and so the lesson i want to hear from you is yeah. 837 hmm. did you say 87 practices 837 practices. it's 87 practices and that translates to to about seventy thousand patients so 87 practices 87 yeah. different operating systems yeah. 87 different priority every, that's yeah. a, that, that's the short version yeah of list of priorities so on yeah. and so forth have you started almost like your center of excellence mm. to start sharing out the learnings between all of your practices and yeah. so on and so forth? And yeah. what has that started to look like and sound like? The reason why I maybe bring it up as a center of excellence is because I recognize that as consumer health grows, mm. designing actually for consumers is mm-hmm. sudden health platforms for consumers actually easier than you think. Yeah. What I think comes the struggle is design that integration yeah, to get the, the NHS to work with yeah. whatever you've built or, yeah, right. or made, right? And so I'm keen to learn about how you navigated that designing yeah. for them, building for them, yeah. how you socialized the mm. lessons from one into lessons for the others yeah. and how you keep that virtuous cycle going whilst you grow because now yeah. you've got a big complicated train yeah. running yeah. and it's beautiful to see yeah. but... I can't help but think about the complexity of your business. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Um, <laughs> but that's part of the opportunity is yeah. because it's hard. Um, we just um, identified that we needed to make sure the problem was consistent across those practices because if it wasn't, we would basically have to have different solutions for that. So we needed to make sure that there was there was a consistent problem that we were solving, which was the case. Um, so that's the first thing. In order to reach scale, the problem needs to be consistent so you can address it using a similar solution multiple times. Um, and what we also recognized was that um, we were going to have to make a lot of mistakes. And the reason why I'm saying is that often when you're trying to reach for scale, 
there are not many playbooks that you can look to. And so in order to create something that's compelling, you're going to have to make mistakes. And so, you know, we made a lot of mistakes around assumptions about what information was important to practices, um, assumptions around um, how much of our platform needed to be integrated, um, assumptions around um, giving us some level of freedom to manage patients without necessarily a massive oversight from the practice. So trying to balance the two and setting expectations was key. I think a lot of the challenge is more human than technology, mm. um, which everyone who works in technology knows to be true. <laughs> exactly, most of the problem is not the tech, it's the people that you have to bring along in order for the tech to be effective. And um, general practice is overwhelmed. Um, and actually, I, I unfortunately believe will get worse um, just because I don't think we've we've really hit the tip of the iceberg in terms of um, the number of GPs that are leaving the profession and how much are coming uh, or sitting training. And also just how much people can make this a career. It's a very, very hard job that I think most people can only do part time because of how difficult it is. Um, and so I, I think, unfortunately, um, getting those people on board who are already overworked, who are already overburdened into thinking new and different takes time. Um, and we've had to get people on board by producing very quick results. Um, so if you produce and you achieve what you say you do and you do it consistently, then people begin to listen and mm. listen more closely because it's not just talk. Um, so I think to answer your question around how do you build an operating system that operates across a number of different practices in a similar way? Um, it's about being recognizing that it's not going to be straightforward and you're going to make mistakes. And a lot of the problems are human related. So how do we consistently try to produce results that give people that trust to overcome those barriers? Mm -hmm. You said you looked at, you tried loads of different models, right? And yeah. You, but you also identified that there wasn't many yeah. you could actually draw upon to be practically useful. What was mm. the ones that were actually useful? What did you, you got any references to share yeah. the rest of the world if they were thinking about such do it, tackling such a niche problem? Yeah, 100%. I think there have been some successful organizations in this space of chronic condition management. So we looked at the biggest um, from Livongo, which was sold to Teladoc, which was a massive chronic condition platform. It sold to employers and kind of insurance companies to bring a solution that would better manage people with chronic conditions, mm -hmm. diabetes, high blood pressure, very similar. Um, on the financial service, they were very successful. And I think they produced a lot of research. They grew very quickly. Um, so we took some lessons as, you know, they had a multi-condition mindset also. Mm -hmm. um, the, the challenge is that it was a completely different economic environment and market. So in America, you know, you're more likely to be able to spend more and therefore you're able to deliver more. Mm. Whereas here, you know, we're talking a budget which is very orders of magnitude smaller. Mm. So for context, in primary care, um, GPs are paid between 170 to 200 pounds a year per patient mm. to manage them. That's it. So if they spend more than that, they don't get any more money um, to manage patients. So, you know, we can spend more on that on shoes or trainers in a few months, let alone um, for looking after your entire healthcare needs mm. in one year. So the budget is extremely small. That's why there's such a rationing of the service where you can only access a GP four weeks away because there's just not enough resources or money to kind of 
improve that. Um, so, um, what was the question again? <laughs> uh, I got lost in listening to you. Yeah. Um, we were talking about the mo- different models that you've seen. Yes, of course. Um, so we had to try and contrast an, an, um, a market where Lavonga was operating, where they were spending thousands a year on just Lavonga, mm-hmm. not even their primary care delivery, and just Lavonga, versus we were, we were being paid pounds. So the constraint was extremely higher. Um, so, you know, who was delivering care, how we had to build a lot better technology mm-hmm. in order to, to not utilize too much human kind of labor in order to get there, um, created uh, a mindset that, we know i think we've had to develop but yeah so there's lavongo there's another company called omada which again had a similar mindset and um, we took some lessons from the digital health companies or what used to be called telehealth businesses mm-hmm. that basically see a doctor on a phone which is interesting because i feel like they have proven to be like an uber type model mm-hmm. where it's very replicable um but the scalability is limited um, in the sense that, you know, Uber has like grown, but has also stabilized a bit. Um, and I think that's because the market dynamics means that it's very hard for you to scale a one-to-one relationship, even if it's online. It's more accessible, it's easier, but it doesn't mean you can reach more people um, and unless you have more doctors. Mm. And so that model actually it is inherently reaches more scale than the traditional model, but doesn't go all the way. Because you're still limited by the amount of doctors you need exactly. in the system to make it work. Yeah. Okay. And so we talk about a one-to-many relationship in delivering care rather than a one-to-one. That's healthy, and I think that's honest. Yeah. I think people are brave enough to be that honest yeah. to say you're getting a one-to-many care. Yeah. Um. Actually, here's a question for you. So building on the fact that you have to utilise technology to be more efficient mm-hmm. and address the fact that the amount of cash spent in yeah. the UK versus, say, other markets such as the US is less. Yeah. The fact that we've got a limited amount of doctors. Mm-hmm. AI. Mm. You have an AI-driven mm. service. Mm. And it depends what you trust the AI <laughs> This is what I was going to say. It depends what you trust how you define as AI. All right, you have an automated service. Exactly. That's what, that's what we like to talk about. Sort of it. Yeah. Um, your website says AI. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> your website is is being yeah. ambitious. Um, don't worry about that. We believe in you. Yeah. Um, but you have an automated, you have an automated algorithmically driven service. Yeah. Where did you choose to automate? Yes. I think because if you look at a service map end to end, where yeah. um, patient diagnosed with chronic pain, flagged on doctor record, yeah. flagged on doctor record, severe picks them up. I'm making this up with my knowledge. Mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm, by the way, you can mm-hmm, correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong. Um, Severa picks them up. Severa engages yeah. in a nice way. Um, books an appointment. Mm-hmm. Gets to speak to you. Gets to make sure that they're managed well. Yeah. Gets nice follow ups. Mm-hmm. Where did you choose to automate along mm-hmm. that journey? Yeah. And how did you define a success mm-hmm. of an automated action? This is a great question. Um, it feels like a simple question, but it's actually no, not. It's not. <laughs> it's um, not difficult. Yeah. It's not simple. Sorry. I, so w- what I feel lucky is I was exposed to more intelligent systems when I worked at DeepMind for a period of time. And so I got to learn the things that I think, I don't think society has yet learned about AI, mm-hmm. which is that it changes 
how we think as human beings. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of lessons <clears throat> when I was at DeepMind. And so for, for people who don't know, DeepMind is an AI research company on par with OpenAI, which people are more familiar with um, if they use ChatGPT or one of those more language learning models. Um, and I spent about five months working at DeepMind on the healthcare team and therefore got exposed to some of the algorithms they were building and people were not going to see for many years um, related to healthcare. And, you know, I had the privilege of kind of being able to test and work in the environment where we were testing some of those algorithms. And what was very clear was that when put in front some world experts, it changed how those experts thought mm. in that they started to doubt their expertise. <laughs> um, no, it's true. And therefore, it changed the way those people thought. Um, so we would test algorithms with people who were less qualified till the world experts. Mm -hmm. um, and it changed everyone's thinking about how they made decisions. Um, and so I walked away from those environments thinking, if you're going to implement this, you're going to have to be very, very cautious and understand that this isn't just going to assist, this is going to change. Mm. I think we talk about AI assistance a lot, but I think it's actually going to be a different type of intelligence and we need to understand how to balance human with with artificial intelligence that's really interesting um i've been co-piloting with gpc nice because i do strata research work yeah, right yeah, so it's yeah. actually really yeah. useful to have such a text input and mm. you can do behavioral analysis and so on and so forth but yeah. i agree with you it changes the way i think yeah but i've also worked in the field of emerging technologies so mm. i know emerging technologies augment your practice yeah and so the way I've challenged myself is I don't have to think on certain problems anymore. Yeah. The computer will. Yeah. I only have to think on structure now. Yeah. I expect the computer to fill in the blanks. And yeah. So I definitely understand it. But what I would like to understand from you now is now you've identified this insight. Mm. How did it play out into Severo? Yes. Or is exactly. that trade secrets? No, I'm happy to share because I think it's it's something that will become common knowledge eventually. Um, I think from that experience, I became very clear that the first place to start is in areas that are less risky to change the way people think. Um, so in care coordination. Mm -hmm. So care coordination sounds really boring, but I think we need way more people working on the care coordination than we do on trying to diagnose conditions. Mm -hmm. Because if you can coordinate care, you can make utilize, you can best utilize people at the right time doing the right thing. Um, and I actually believe we have enough people who are trained to look after people who are just not utilizing them well. Mm. They're wasting a lot of time. And so we said that we want to focus our intelligence on care coordination, which is about um, how do we get the right person to be seen at the right time in the right way by the right person. Um, and so that's what we do. And so that for us looks like a few things. So first about triage. So how do we decide who comes first on the list to see? Mm. Um, and then it's about deciding from once you have that list how do you then decide um, what to do for them so providing any insights that will help you make a better decision for that person um, but really the first thing to get right is making sure that that list of people is accurate that the insights you use to make that list is, is effective um, and that you give the right insight into why that person is at the top of the list to the person that is looking after them um, and then, once you put them on that list, the clinician has done their work, the system should then follow up. Mm. Especially if you have a chronic condition because it doesn't end. So the system should then like do the check-in. If, if I prescribe you Ramapril, 
um, I know one of the biggest side effects is fluid in your ankles. Um, and so I should ask about that mm. after. Um, whereas at the moment, no one asks about that until when you come back in and you have fluid in your ankles. Um, That's long. <laughs> whereas <laughs> a system knows that if you're prescribed these, these are common side effects, just ask them about it. Um, and so what we think is that the best standpoint, and I think this will translate to other industries, is actually taking away the work that um, doesn't require decision making, but requires coordination of information to make a good decision. So you had a question for you here about the fact that chronic pain is so vast, mm. the challenge of chronic pain is so vast, then you can only, with your limited resource of not yeah. being funded to the heavens, mm. You can only address a specific thing. Mm. And my question was, what area do you think needs most in, more investment? But I guess you answered that question. In the sense of coordination, oh, coordination of care. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Like if, and it's such an unsexy kind of topic around coordinating care. It's not like diagnosing, it's not automating, it's not treating someone, you know, or, or doing the diagnosis or sending the medication. It's coordinating it. Mm. But I think if we do that, then a lot of our healthcare problems, I think, will be solved. So coordination, and you've tasked your AI to take out, to address the low-risk challenges and get some of that coordination done in yeah. ways you see fit, yeah. to be better informed, to yeah. get the process moving smoother and to make yeah. sure that people are at risk of stuff that you know they can be at risk by, the predictable exactly. things you know they yeah. can be at risk yeah. by. Yeah, and you flag it and you review it and you make sure anyone in any given time who needs that help is getting it. So I guess then the, the goes back to the second part of this, the, the AI question, right, which is success. Mm. How do you know when you're making, you're using these um, automated decisions for successful application mm. versus perpetuating and creating new problems that you can't see yet? So um, there's a book that I really like, um, which I highly recommend. It's not a very, it's not one of your kind of more popular books that people would recommend it's called how to fly a horse um i've forgotten the author's name now but i'll find it, we'll um, find it. We'll but it's a uh, it's a fantastic book that basically talks about everything we've invented in all of society has first been met with apprehension and kind of skepticism um which has meant that it's taken very long for it to be adopted and then there's breakthroughs and there's specific people that like through all will in the world make it happen. Mm. But one thing that's very clear is that after that thing comes into the world, it always creates new problems. Mm. Always. It it never does um anything opposite than that. And so he the author just goes through these cycles of everything we've invented from cars to, you know, genomic processing and how this creates new questions that we never had to answer. Mm. And I think this is the same will happen with AI. We don't know what those questions are and I don't propose to know what those answers might be. But um, uh, all I do know is that it's going to create new problems, um, which creates new opportunity and then creates new businesses. Mm. It's kind of like, you know, how um, social media has created this need for moderation and... Um, identifying fakes mm. and misinformation. We didn't really have that problem with journalists. Um, I mean, there probably <laughs> was an element of that, but, but it yeah. wasn't, uh, you know, this whole swathe of companies trying to solve for that. Mm. And so every platform creates new problems, which creates new opportunity, and it actually is just a cycle that feeds itself. All right. Last, <laughs> it's not bad. I, I agree with you. Yeah. But then I guess I want to ask a practical 
I want to ask something provocative too. I guess because you know this, yeah, to be true, yeah. What do you look out for on your own platform to make sure that yeah. you're still playing safe? Yeah, because we're applying this technology to someone's health. Yes, and they're trusting you. Yes, and you're in the position of doing new things. Yeah, all of those aligned equal a higher mm-hmm. risk than not right mm-hmm. and so i'd be interested to hear how you approach risk yeah dealing with 87 practices and seventy thousand patients yeah i mean you have really good processes uh, i think is a big way in which you manage risk and i would argue is probably the best way is to have good checks and balances into how you you develop and bring about things um and so we have a governance team that oversees when we ship um, any product or how we operate. Um, we have a safety team that works with the governance team um, and their job is to stress test the things that we build um, to make sure it goes through some checks and balances so that we don't miss anything obvious because there is, you know, there is a proportion that we can, we will learn in real life, but there's also a large proportion, which is the majority that we can um, deal with before it meets people in real life. Um, and so I think it's about having good process and systems, but also respecting that. Mm. I think a lot of companies have it, but they don't respect it. They're mm. like, oh, don't don't listen to that product safety person. Like, you know, they just that's they're meant to do that, but you know, it's okay. We can ship it. And I think a lot of companies have that. Where it's not like they don't have anyone doing this work. It's just that they don't respect it, and mm. so like they just bypass or they skip it or they delete what the person said that they wanted to do and just continue. And so I think that's the bigger problem is that a lot of the companies who are building AI, do they respect the safety and process and how important that is in generating the best outcome? And I think some companies have clocked on to the fact we didn't do that for social media platforms. Mm. Um, there's a, um, Tristan Harris is a guy that runs the Center for Humane Technology. Mm-hmm. There's a video here on YouTube where he spoke about how our first contact with AI was through social media platform. Mm-hmm. And our second contact is with these language learning models. Um, mm-hmm. And we have an opportunity to learn all the mistakes that we made in the social media platforms um, and uh, to respect that we will need some level of scrutiny and government policy oversight in a way that we're now only doing it how many years later when these platforms were created. Um, and I think he's completely correct. We've got to wrap up soon. I've got two more questions for Go you. For it. Uh, the first question is around actually, I loved what you said about respecting. Yeah. Like, that's the first time I've heard it articulated, and no one's trying to sell me some newfangled dangle regulation. <laughs> they actually just say, use what you have in front of you well. Yeah. yeah. And I appreciate that sincerely because I think that's such an accessible mm. recommendation. Mm. Um, moving beyond that, and to respecting the policy which empowers mm. the re- empowers your safety people right mm. or your governance people yeah. how is it like implementing artificial intelligence services mm. automated automated services i'll save you yeah, so i'll okay. save myself i'll much. correct myself automated services yeah. in a cqc regulated environment yeah yeah that's i would love to hear that because <laughs> i know for a fact that when you propose in any service design solution yeah any automated type of solution they're like yeah that's a tool it's not a diagnostic machine yes it's this it's yeah. that there's yeah there's 
there's really a specific approach you have to do if you want to do, do that in this modern era, right? Um, it will change. It's going to change. Yeah. Really soon because these open language models have burst the water open yeah. for what people are going to make. Yeah. But nonetheless, in this current regulatory environment, I'd mm -hmm. love to understand mm -hmm. the steps and considerations you and Riz and the rest mm -hmm. of the team had to mm -hmm. take whilst here because yeah. that's it's yeah. stringent. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. So, um, well, CQC is a Care Quality Commission, Thank you. which is um, the body that regulates all care and social care delivery in the UK. Um, so we are registered as part of that, which is has legal requirements um, in how we deliver care. Um, and so the way we think about it is that um, as a result of that governance and that regulation, we have to make sure that what we deliver is directly in line with the expectations of that. Um, so what I mean is starting in areas where actually um, we're not a medical device in that automation and a lot of the decisions we make are reversible and clinicians can look under the hood as to how this patient ended up here or what the suggestions were to hand it up here. So there's, we give more control over the algorithms than other companies would because we know that without that control, you know, um, it's very much like a black box mm. in like how A becomes B um, or C or D. Um, and so, as I said, the 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 opportunity is we have teams focused on the government, which is for CQC. So governance is kind of overseeing what legally we need to be doing to maintain that registration. And then um, the product safety is about saying, how do we not cross that line into a medical device until we decide like we want to become a medical device and then we build the right processes and systems to to get there um and so our approach was the first focus on care coordination mm. which is assistive which doesn't change the decision making mm. which actually um you can map a a to b to c into how we came to that decision um in order to make progress with an automated to more intelligent system i love how you thought about it <laughs> No, I do, because I can, I guess the unspoken thing that are going on between my ears is the fact that I can see in here that you built out a three to five year roadmap. I can see in here, you said you're going to test here, learn yeah. here, fail here, and these are going to be my success metrics. Yeah. I also recognise that you said from what I learn here is going to yeah. influence the decisions I make next yeah. into if I go and apply this to, uh, go apply these automated decisions to places where they will change exactly. the physician or healthcare professional's decision exactly. making or influence yeah. it significantly yeah. and because of your awareness of that you've yeah. taken the steps to apply the technology yeah. safely whilst moving at a real breakneck pace. pace that's it I respect it highly <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess there's this coming up 45 minutes or so so I ain't got time I, we ain't got much time Yeah. Um, I want to talk about out, you work outside Severa. Yeah. You're like uh, associate non-executive director yes. of a mental health trust. Yes. That's really cool. And I guess mm. it keeps you like aware and in the loop of how things are commissioned and stuff. I know it has a commercial benefit, but yeah. I'd love to talk about, we did some work on healthcare commissioning nice. last year in Southwark. And I just learned a lot about that whole process of things and how mm. people think about things. But, mm. I guess for a already stretched healthcare environment mm. that we live in today, for a for one that's got budget cuts on budget cuts, mm. 
what's it like commissioning, mm. not selling, mm. but commissioning health services? Mm. What are you thinking about for the future sustainability of that service for the people and the people working in it? Mm. What are the considerations to future-proof? What's that discussion like? And I guess the reason why I ask is because I know loads of people that might watch this will be designers or people pitching in services or mm. service designers for healthcare or whatever. And I think that level of knowing what and why people are buying mm. is so important. And mm. I think that's all. And sometimes I think it's very different to what people selling think that people buy for, if that makes any mm. sense. Mm. And so I'll just see if I'd love to start aligning some of that thinking before yeah. we go. Yeah, I mean, one thing to clarify is that the role that I'm in is I'm on the board of the Mental Health Trust, Barnet Anfield Haringey Trust. Um, and actually, you know, we don't, we do very little commissioning mm. for like some contracts where the trust is a lead provider. Um, and so they would bring people together to deliver on a specific kind of, you know, care delivery pathway. Um, actually, most of what the trust does is it is responding to commissioners. Um, and so I'm I'm not very, the trust isn't very involved unle unless it's for those specific kind of care delivery pathways in commissioning services. What I do see and what has been a massive learning is, as you mentioned, being close to how a trust that manages most of North London and millions of people at the most acute side of care delivery, oh, not necessarily most acute, but some of the most unspoken and um, I would say most unwell patients in society, mental health patients, and this is serious mental health. This is not that people who have mild or moderate depression isn't serious, it is but um, these conditions are some of the hardest to manage. Um, so for me, it was just learning about how do you make a system that's so complex operational and who is involved in making that successful? And oh gosh, there is so much to how these systems operate. Um, and there are so much checks and balances and there's reviews and there's data and there's information. I think sometimes too much that even clouds our judgment because it's just, you know, you're overwhelmed by data and information. And so for me, it was a learning around governance. Mm. It was a learning around systems and processes at that scale where you're dealing with the things that are very hard to automate. And, you know, people have to go in and out of um, mental health institutions. And in that mindset, what I would say, being a part of the trust and being in this role of sitting on a board and seeing board papers and having to visit some of these hospital um, kind of sites, just learning that so much of doing this at scale is about having people of experience, the right processes and respecting all of that, kind of going back and circling around to what we've mentioned. Um, I'm in awe. I'm also, I don't have any ambitions anymore to be any CEO of any trust because I feel like <laughs> um, confines what you can do no it does like there's only so much you can do um i really i really enjoyed being a part of the organization learning from a different angle how do you deliver care at scale and i'm um, applying some of those lessons as well all right um two quick fire questions 
mental health is one of the biggest chronic pain conditions mm. ever mm. unspoken. Would mm-hmm. you do you think Severe is gonna tackle it in the next Absolutely. five years? All right, second question. <laughs> well, the rest hard. Well, the rest of the questions hard today. A little more challenging. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, but I was excited good. to see you, so like, I had to really get off my yeah, chest. Yeah. Um, second question: If funding was not an option, or not even funding, if resource was an option, because it's not just money you need to yeah. do these problems. Yeah. If resource wasn't an option, what problem would you solve? If resource wasn't a problem, what problem would I solve? I would create an entire new primary care system in Africa. Why? Um, because it has the youngest population of any continent um, and therefore you have an opportunity to build healthcare around young people Mm. and every other market you're building around mainly an older population of people Um, so that's exciting what's the spin on it why is it exciting what's why is that flip so exciting to you because you can build specifically with technology in mind because young people have that adoption and how you transfer and communicate and so the expectation is that it's mobile. The expectation is that it's digital. The expectation is that it's asynchronous. And so when you have that expectation, you can design, I think, better systems because people have that as a need as part of delivering care. Ivan, thank you so much for Pleasure. Time. No, this has been like, great. I have a, awesome well, We questions. had a really good question, like good session. But yeah. Lots of love. Yeah. Um, we're going to hang out after this. Other okay. Time. That'd be good. But yeah, someone else has to record now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>